listening to the Spartan Orientation Station on Impact 89FM, the podcast by students for students. Now, this week's episode. Welcome back to the Spartan Orientation Station. This episode, we are discussing the Office of Student Support and Accountability, also known as OSA. They support student success by ensuring a civil and inclusive learning environment based on academic and personal integrity. OSA supports personal and community accountability and addresses con- conduct inconsistent with the Spartan Code of Honor with honesty, respect, and fairness. My name is Abigail. I'm a rising senior here at Michigan State with a major in social work and a minor in justice law and public policy. And today we have Jake Casper, um, and we also are joined by Rick Schaefer from the office of OSA. Thank you for joining us today. Um, My name is Lauren Calhoun. I'm a recent graduate from MSU with a major in psychology, and I have the same minor as Abby, law, justice, and public policy. So if you guys could just go ahead and introduce yourselves and kind of explain the roles that are at OSA and then what the office provides for students. Again, thanks so much for having us. I am Jake Casper, and I'm here with my uh, colleague, Rick Schaefer. I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, But we're just super excited to be here to talk with the incoming Spartans and Super excited to talk about our office, the Office of Student Support and Accountability. Rick, you want to say anything there? Sure. Uh, so Rick Schaefer, I'm actually a two-time alum, uh, and I have two sons who graduated from Michigan State University. As of Monday will be my 23rd year and my post-master's career at MSU. I did work at three other institutions before coming back to my alma mater. Would you uh, share with the students what you studied? As I, what I studied in undergrad? Yeah. I was a communication arts and sciences major. Wonderful. And a master's degree in physical education exercise science. I thought I was going to be an athletic director or a director of rec sports, and um, I'm obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, but I can go ahead and, and uh, talk about our office and our office, uh, you know, in our on our team, we really seek to support students. As you already mentioned earlier, Abby talked about how our office is focused on equity, integrity, and the learning and the process and processes for students. And these processes uh, can be formal hearings, adjudication process, and it can also be informal conflict resolution, conflict coaching, and, and how we can support students. But the big importance of our office is we work with students to provide support for students and help them, whether it's personal, organizational, or academic integrity issues or challenges that come up, and also our care and intervention, uh, conflict resolution, different things that we just that we have in place to give uh, students full support. Uh, and again, that could also be through medical amnesty and medical leave and return process. So I'm excited to talk more about each of these things, but these are many of the different resources we we provide in our office. Right. Thank you. Um, so just kind of leaning into what you just talked about. Um, so what kind of issues do you deal with that students um, come to you about? Life happens, you know, and, and when students come as students and they're really trying to balance and find their place in the community. Uh, and so there's many issues that may come up, whether it's a conflict with uh, each other, you know, maybe it's a roommate conflict, maybe it's a, a challenge with a faculty member or staff on campus, or maybe they have made some poor personal choices around um, substance use or different things that may be, I would say, against policy. And there's different uh, procedures and policies that we have in place. Those are the type of issues that we would see where a student may have a concern about that. I, 
I would say also on the support side, though, is if students having a uh, mental health concern or uh, maybe they broke their leg while they were skateboarding one weekend and, and they need to withdraw from the university, whatever those type of things, I, I'd like to think that we're a one-stop shop uh, to give students whatever support. So if they're not sure where to go, this is a great spot for them to start and, and ask, and, and we're happy to help. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say that we uh, frequently refer people to another office because the thing that they need or want is not something that we directly facilitate, but I think it's appropriate for us to know uh, where to send folks. Um, I think the other thing I would just add to what Jake said is that when you have a dense population of people um, primarily at that 18 to 23-year-old age, they are going from being fairly dependent, perhaps, depending on their lived experience, to a pretty independent uh, uh, existence, or as my recently graduated sons would say, that being an adult, becoming an adult isn't all good. And so sometimes there's that, uh, I have to make choices and live with the consequences of those choices. Um, and so, and then, so they can end up in conflict with other people. You can end up in conflict with your own values. You might be struggling with what those things are, um, figuring out who you are. And that can be a challenging, uh, road. And I think maybe harder today than in many respects, maybe it ever was. And so, uh, I think we're part of that bridge between learning to be, um, independent and interdependent, um, and recognizing that everything that we do and the things that happen around us affect other people. So I think we help negotiate some of that, some of that space. And then, you know, to use Jake's point, the support side is the side that typically feels the best to us. You know, you have somebody who gets really sick or really hurt and they're unable to complete their education and feeling like I'm going to fail out of the university. There's nowhere for, to go, for them to go. Our office is a place they can go and we can help them figure out how to get back on track when they're ready to do so. Gotcha. And um, kind of building off of that, let's just say, for example, I have a problem with one of my roommates and I need to resolve a conflict with them. What do those next steps look like in terms of filing? Would I just like go to the website? Would I come down to the office? What does that kind yeah. of look like? And other examples of other things that students might need to come to you for. Sure. So I'll take your roommate one. So, like that's a common one. <laughs> it, it, it is. Um, and, and and I would say it's part of growing up. Right? Oh, I agree. It's part mm -hmm. of being a student. It's part of uh, developing as humans. I mean, that is, it is a natural occurrence. And I've, I've been married for 31 years, and so it's also part of life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not going to – my my, uh, my wife has far more complaints than I do, I'm sure. <laughs> but I guess what I would say is that – so – if we think about um, our intersection with students at the university, there's a couple ways to think about it. Are we trying to help you be successful just in the moment, just for your time at the university, or for a lifetime? And so when Jake mentioned we work with people, right? So if you come to us with a concern about your roommate, we want to help you develop the skills and capacity to do that on your own, not just have somebody solve it for you. And so if you're not feeling like you have the ability or the words or the language or the tools to do that, the university hires people who live on residence hall floors to help students with those things. They're called RAs. Mm -hmm. And we also have aides uh, on our campus as well who work for the Office of Culture and Academic Transitions. We have live-in staff members who are grad students. We have live-in staff members who are full-time employees. 
And so from your example, I would start with, let's start with the lowest common denominator in terms of energy and number of people to be involved in the potential for an adversarial sort of process. So first thing I would say is start with your roommate. And if that's not successful, you go to your RA or you go to somebody else who can help you with what, what is the language I need to use? How do I helpful do that? But right. it is, there are times when it rises to, I've tried all the other stuff, it's not working, or perhaps it's so serious that I don't feel safe, right? It would be an example. So sometimes there are times when people actually end up calling the police department for, for things, but our office would most likely get involved when a student says, my roommate is doing things that make it very, very difficult for me to continue to be a student and to live in this space. Um, and what they're doing violates university policy. So Jake mentioned alcohol and other drugs. Um, you know, it could be other sorts of just the kinds of things that happen when people live together. Um, and so they would, they can, the, I think the safest thing to do is to say that um, people can call us, they can email us. Um, I think you've got that information uh, as well. Uh, our email address is super easy to remember. If you remember the name, it's OSA, O-S-S-A at msu.edu. But we would probably want to talk you through, like what is it that you're concerned about? What is it your goals are? How do you, uh, what would a good outcome look like? And then to what degree would the processes the institution afford you help you meet those? Um, I'm going to use an example. Like if you have a problem with your roommate, because of noise and you've never spoken to your roommate, believe it or not, we have people whose parents then call the president of the university. Uh, say, don't my, do that. Don't, <laughs> right? that's, not oh, a wow. re- that's not a reasonable yeah. life skill because right. when you leave the university, they're who you're gonna call. So um, you know, we wanna give people the, school, the, the tools and the skills to work these things out on their own. All right, so if I'm having um, some issues with the roommate, Let's just keep going off of that okay. example. Yeah. Um, but if I was having issues with a roommate and I was just kind of nervous about it all, um, would I be able to bring a friend with me to kind of file a complaint um, to accompany me during that time? Absolutely. So if you came to the office uh, in person, which is in the Student Services Building across the street from the Broad Art Museum, and for those who haven't seen the movie Batman versus Superman, that was Lex Luthor's house in the movie. Um. Yeah, come and see us. Our office feels like a living room if you've never been there. And we've got candy in and there. And we've got candy. Okay, I might be stopping. Right, yeah, right. And, it's, and let's right. just be clear, it's the good candy. Yes. Like, okay. you know, a Baby Ruth bar or a Snickers bar. Or, oh. Like, it's substantive. It's not just little Smarties. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I would... I can't stand it when they have Whoppers or Dum Dums, and I'm like, these <laughs> are the, the worst. same way. Hey, whoppers, whoppers are good. I like Whoppers, <laughs> um, so I'm going to I'm gonna have to call you out on that one, Jake. So you guys have the good stuff. <laughs> we have the good stuff. Um, of course, right? Uh, I mean, we sometimes have uh, students who are going to come in where English is not their first language, mm-hmm. and having a friend or a colleague or somebody who can help with interpretation if needed... We uh, sometimes folks who have a con- have accommodation needs, and so having a colleague or somebody from one of our colleagues from the Resource Center for Persons with Disabilities, they might come and help that person sort of stay centered, on, or maybe help understand the process that's that, or help, frankly, us understand how the student is experiencing the process. So, absolutely, um, where there are some limitations are in the more formal processes. Uh, where we're going through something we'd call adjudication, where there's going to be um, private information about other students involved. Mm-hmm. And as a student, you all have um, 
um, federally protected uh, rights to privacy. And so we don't have the authority to just release your private information. Some of it can be information you really don't want third parties to know, somebody's friend to hear. Mm -hmm. And so we have to respect that, um, th those rights as well. All right, and now kind of moving on, this is a very, um, I would say a hot button issue because there hot are- topic alert. Oh yes. <laughs> Um, in terms of using AI in academic settings and using chat, GPT, and all of those other things, um, do you guys have a specific policy on that and the use of AI in the academic setting and um, kind of what that looks like? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. we, we can talk about that, too. I just feel like when you have a hot topic alert, there should be like a sizzle sound effect or right. something we like that. Right, like a button like, or a horn. This is like, <laughs> this is hot off the presses. It's, oh, man, it is a big topic. You're absolutely oh, yes. right. So yeah. anyways, but for this hot topic of chat GPT or generative artificial intelligence, it is a, a big discussion that we've been having all year. I mean, ever since November when... Um, the 3.0 came out and and the different versions have come out. So there's a lot of conversation about what what uh, can be done, what should be done, and how is uh, ChatGPT used in the classroom? Should it be used in the classroom? Or is it a threat? Or is it a tool? Or I mean, all these conversations are very helpful. We There is not a specific policy about the use of ChatGPT. No university works that fast. Frankly, right. um, and and we don't really have something that will cover all things, every single situation. And we all know. I think all of you around the table here is just tomorrow. It's it's going to be old news, and it's going to be something new. So by the time anything gets approved, it would be already old information. So what I what we've been talking about this is faculty, staff, and and we've had some students as well talking about how does. Um, ChatGPT help the learning environment on campus? Can it be a tool? How can faculty use it? And so really the, the big thing though is every student, every single class is you want to be aware and understanding the faculty's approach to ChatGPT. We all know some faculty absolutely not, do not touch it, do not use it, and that will be all over their syllabus. And that's important for the students to know in that class. So if you are taking a, a poli-sci class or, mm -hmm. or a uh, human biology class and the faculty member says, no, no chat GPT is welcome, no generative AI, know that and then comply with that. And then you may have some cutting edge faculty member. And there are some hip people at the university. Rick Schaefer is one of them. Um, <laughs> there's, there's not... A, a lot, but there's some. And uh, so you might have some faculty that want to try it and say, hey, we're going to use this as a tool. We're going to make it unique. It's just, it really is going to be up to each instructor and how they tailor their coursework for ChatGPT. The biggest mistake a student can make is to go into a class and assume that they are allowed to use it or not allowed to use it. It just really is important to be aware of that. And policy does allow for fac each faculty to decide what they want to do. Does that make sense? So yeah. that policy covers everything. So good question, though. It is a hot topic. I think we're still trying to figure out what's oh, the best yeah. way to use it. Because I've seen, I've had professors do both because it's like fairly new. I remember like in the spring semester, like a, a lot because um, social work is very writing based. So they're like, no, don't use this. Mm -hmm. 
but I had some other professors who were like, you can use it as a tool. So I definitely agree. There are definitely two sides to the coin. So yeah, even in my like philosophy class that I took before I graduated, um, we had like a whole section on like machine and the mind and mm-hmm. chat GPT was like mm-hmm. an entire topic. Right. Um, and we had to like ask chat GPT if it was like conscious and all this stuff. It was actually kind of cool. That freaks me out yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but we use it as part of our like curriculum basically. So definitely just make sure you're paying attention if yeah, you know what I your agree. professors and, like. And, and really going back to the purpose of why we're here. Why are we at the university? Mm-hmm. And that is to get an education. That is to learn. And so if a tool is taking away that opportunity for you, for example, writing or, or philosophy, mm-hmm. you were saying, but just the whole writing process is, is part of learning. It's not just the end result of a paper that you're turning in, but how you're going to revise, how you're going to craft your ideas, how you're going to engage with your reader and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's really important to kind of stay focused on the purpose of being learners, lifelong learners. and um, not getting bogged down into turning in a paper, you know, and, and that's where ChatGPT could be that just that's going to be your end result, but you're losing that learning opportunity. Right. So kind of shifting gears a little bit. So there's you a need lot. A sound, you need a sound effect for that <laughs> gear shifting. Yeah, like a, a right. hawk or, or yes. I love it. Um, But kind of shifting gears. Um, so there's a lot of student organizations offered on campus for students, um, but do you guys have any involvement with those student organizations? Yes. So um, there was a time when we had more than a thousand, and for some of our students, uh, they um, they come from institutions that had less than a thousand students, let alone organizations. Right. And so the scope is is phenomenal. I used to work in the Department of Student Life, as it was called then, now called the Office of Spartan Experiences, where those organizations get registered. Our involvement in, uh, in, in, in with student organizations comes in several forms. One of them is new, and that is the student organization conduct policy. So if a student organization is um, violating university policy, violating the uh, practices or policies of the institution, um, a faculty member, staff member, a student can contact our office and say, you know, this organization is harassing my organization or this organization is embezzling funds or this organization is involved in hazing. Um, our office will take those reports. We will investigate them. We will reach out to the organization, have a conversation with them. Um, our office uh, was recently charged with the formal responsibility of then deciding those cases um, this past fall. And so sometimes organizations find themselves no longer registered as a student organization because of those behaviors. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we investigate those things and find out there's just not enough information there for us to take an action on. Um, What I really appreciate about our involvement with organizations is really around this uh, conflict resolution stuff, in particular restorative justice. So Sometimes we have organizations who contact us and say, we're not getting along with each other very well. We have some members who don't play well with other people. Uh, we've had some challenges with some of our um, organiza- our events, or we've been in conflict with another organization, but we really don't want to go through some formal discipline thing. We don't, we're not goals and to get somebody in trouble, we want to resolve the conflict. And so we facilitated, um, uh, we would, I would call them circles, uh, probably the simplest way to explain to your audience, but... It is what it sounds like, a group of people sitting in a circle. It's a facilitated conversation, typically using a talking piece. 
And the point is to help people um, share what's happening from their perspective, uh, the impact of that behavior on other people, and what they think is needed to make things right. Everybody gets a chance to have some say in that. And ideally, they come to a resolution. And, you know, I can tell you uh, and tell your audience that I've never had somebody come to us afterward and say, that was a waste of my time. Everybody universally says, wow, that was an interesting process. I found it useful. It often helps them find ways to address concerns that maybe they haven't yet voiced, but they found a way to use their voice. Um, and also can help uh, student leaders within an organization hear things maybe in a way that they haven't heard before. So lots of different ways. And we're also interested in helping the organization be successful going forward so we can we can assist with uh, helping advise people on how they might onboard new folks too. Now, the st- officers aren't experiences is really the place to begin that, but we can partner with folks. All right, thank you. Yeah. And so um, kind of going off of what, maybe a a hearing board looks like. If you could just kind of give us um, some examples of some of those things, maybe some descriptions, because I see here on the website there are a couple of different boards, like for example, the Residence Hall Area Board, um, the All University Student Hearing Board, and various other examples. So if you could kind of like describe what those look like and what the process for those looks like. Absolutely. So we uh, oversee and, and advise seven different hearing boards um, and they are they're full of faculty, staff, and student volunteers that serve on a hearing board, and they help when there's a formal process. So, uh, and you've heard from Rick and I talking a lot about circles and, and conflict and, and helping students, and we really try to mitigate or take care of those issues up front. But sometimes there's that formal process, and, and that's necessary when a complaint gets to that part, and that's where the hearing board would come in. What's really kind of cool about the hearing boards is all seven of our hearing boards have students as part of it. And really, the student rights and responsibilities uh, really focuses on the student voice. Um, so whenever someone is going through the process, if it's, uh, anytime a student's going through the process, they can always rest assured that there is a student voice on that uh, hearing board or that adjudication board. So. The different boards vary depending on the type of uh, violation, allegation. You know, there's an academic hearing board, uh, and that would obviously involve faculty as well as students. So we have, we have those hearing boards, and then we have uh, the RHAB, which is the Residence Hall Association Board. So that has residents for resident violations, and, and they would adjudicate those boards, and then We've got other types of boards for that involve the faculty, fac- staff, and faculty as well as students on that board as well. But it, again, it's always multiple people that our office will train, uh, prepare for these hearings to make sure that it's equitable, inclusive, um, and it has integrity, and that uh, they truly are hearing the case and hearing the situation. Can I uh, just a quick Please. add, just for yeah. a kind of a macro piece? So. When we use the term hearing, generally speaking, what we're saying is there are at least two parties involved who are not in agreement about what happened and or what should be done about it. And, uh, and one party who is accused of wrongdoing is saying, I didn't do it, or I don't believe it violated a university policy. And so we employ hearing where we get the parties together 
And a third party, like a hearing board, will hear everybody and then they'll ask questions and try to decide what happens. But I want to put it in some context. Some people think everything goes to a hearing. We get thousands of complaints a year mm-hmm. about personal misconduct. <laughs> about personal misconduct. So like right. maybe things like involving a roommate that's really outside the academic realm or alleged academic misconduct, right, or student organization kind of. About 90% of those, maybe more probably, get resolved with the party saying, it's true, I did do this, mm-hmm. and I'm willing to accept responsibility. Lauren, you seem surprised by that. I am. <laughs> Why? I yeah. am, but I'm also not. I'm, I'm not surprised because you guys are amazing at what you do. That's what you're here for. You're, you're very but, kind, but I, I'm going to give your cohort the credit for that, not us. Yes, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I also am surprised because just depending on, I guess it depends on the situation, um, like if it was harassment or like like you said, like substance abuse and things like that. Yeah. Like I just know some people act like, you know, I didn't do anything. And I don't know. It's just a little weird. So here's what, here's what I would say about this. I think that our processes certainly help that, right? If you're not risking, you know, imprisonment, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? There's not the same level of risk for saying, yes, this is true. I did it, right? Certainly the more serious the allegation, the more likely someone is to say, what do I have to lose, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I, well, here's what I think it means, uh, is that I do believe most people are honest. Most people are willing to be held accountable. If the process they're going through is fair and reasonable and the outcomes are something that they think are acceptable. So I think we can get some credit for that. Um, but I also think there's a narrative out there that everybody lies and everybody cheats and everybody's you know, out for themselves. I don't think that's true, and I think our students prove that all the time. Um, and you know, if nine out of ten are coming in and saying this is true, I think that says something about you and your colleagues more than it does about us. Mm-hmm. It's a Spartan way, yeah. you know. That's yeah. the way I like to look at it. So, kind of shifting, mentioning on what you said earlier about somebody. <laughs> I was shifting. (laughs) I was shifting with my hand, so I just want to make sure you all knew that. Um, I remember you saying how um, if somebody had like medical issues and they just needed help catching up and things like that. Um, So, just kind of mentioning medical amnesty. Mm -hmm. um, What is that? How does it work? Um, What does medical amnesty cover? And like, what doesn't it cover? Yeah. Um, So, just kind of. So I'm going to, I'm going to actually, because I think um, at some point you're going to ask us about maybe a medical leave and return. I'm going to put these together and then, and then clarify them. So the, the preface, uh, someone's having trouble, right? So uh, I'll use an example. My, my youngest son, his uh, first year at another institution, I don't want to throw the institution under the bus, but he broke his hip a week before finals week. Right, Mm -hmm. Uh, a pedestrian campus, no transportation. Imagine trying to walk around with a broken hip. Right, Um, that institution didn't have a medical leave and return process, so he failed his final exams, and um, eventually transferred, came back to MSU, and then graduated with a three nine in economics. Redemption. There there we go. go, Right, but uh, had he been at Michigan State University, he would have up to a year to request a medical leave for obviously very good reasons, and he wouldn't have had to fail that semester. Now, he would have been out the refund, right, because it's way at the end of the semester, but he could have uh, gotten withdrawals instead of zeros for those grades, come back and uh, recovered, and would not be in academic jeopardy at that point. So that's the medical leave 
and return process. And it doesn't have to be a physical injury. We can have mental health. It can be number one. It could be, you know, we also have a grief absence policy at the institution. Our office doesn't deal with that, but you know, your your grandmother dies, right? And that's just so traumatic. So, so medical leave and return is about that leaving the semester. Medical amnesty uh, is a policy designed to mirror that which was uh, passed by the state of Michigan a few years ago to encourage people to seek help for someone who is struggling with a substance. So, um, you know, if a student who is so intoxicated they can't walk or they're having trouble speaking or they're, they're, they're vomiting, right? And we want people to call for help. We don't want the fear that you're going to get in trouble to keep you from calling for assistance. I, unfortunately, in my career, have sat with people who did not call, and their friend died right in front of them. And the reason that they didn't call was because they thought their friend or they would get in trouble. And whatever you did, whatever the policy violation is, not secondary, it's way down the line to living. So um, the policy was put in place in our office along with the Residence Education Housing Services and other campus partners, counseling center, and so on, um, have said, if you call for help for you or for a friend, the person who calls and the person who needs assistance is not going to face university discipline. We may ask you to educate yourself about alcohol and other drugs, but the goal is not to create a disciplinary record. And so we hope everybody talks about that. Right. See, you hear, see something, say something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We mean that literally. Yeah. Right. And so that's, does that, so I want to kind of a field a little bit of your question, but you know, you can't graduate and success, succeed in life if you don't survive. Mm-hmm. So let's start with some very basic pieces and then where do you need help and support, reasonable help and support to graduate? Again, our goal is to see you graduate and go on to do other things, not to stop that. Right. I think that's really important to reiterate. And like you said, unfortunately, some students don't know about that. And they think if, you know, if they're underage, they're going to get into trouble and then they can't help their friend. And then unfortunately, those bad things happen. And because I've also heard stories and I bet Lauren has, too. And for sure. And it's just one of those things that I think all students should know about. So. Yeah, And their lived experience with authority may be the, oh, the barrier, right? So sure. the reality yeah, yeah. is. They're yeah. not going to, there's like the idea of reaching out to somebody in power is so it's, scary. Yeah, it is right? scary. Uh, but, you know, and they don't know Jake and I, and they, they probably don't know you personally, but uh, you can look it up. It is a policy. It's it's on the university's website. You can look up medical amnesty and say, I can hold the institution accountable for this. You said you're going to do this. And if you don't do it now, I've got a complaint. Right? Right. And kind of on our last leg here, um, as someone in social work and as someone who is also very intrigued by the restorative justice piece. And I know we could talk for hours and very long time about this, but kind of um, going off of that, there are other ways to resolve conflicts. So there's the adjudication, conflict coaching, um, and also restorative justice. Kind of what do those individual processes look like? How long do they take? Is it a case-by-case basis? Kind of explaining those things, a little snippet into each. And I think uh, Rick and I could talk about this for hours. Uh, we, <laughs> yeah. This is this is definitely a passion area for both of us, but we really, uh, conflict, it's all around us. And, and uh, we really there's two things that we really focus on is one is conflict is inevitable and combat is optional. So 
Uh, and I think restorative justice really uh, talks about how do we have conflict and restore one another back into the community. Um, and and uh, Rick will talk some more on that, but just with the restorative justice, we are focused on the circle. We are focused on how do we identify the harm? How do we identify what went wrong? And once we've identified that, how do we repair it? How do we fix it? And this is kind of goes back to our underlying philosophy for the office is doing things with the student, not to the student. Um, doing it with community members, not to the community members. And, and there's so much power in that. When you empower someone to say, I'm sorry, I screwed up. Uh, restorative justice requires students to say, I messed up. It was my fault in order for us to do restorative justice. Because if we don't allow for that, um, then there's there's no purpose in going into this process. And uh, we and Rick and I will talk some more about some of this example, these examples, but when a student or faculty, staff, or family members, when we are held accountable, sometimes in our, and, and we have this criminal justice model that basically says you get caught, you're punished. But with restorative justice is you, you're being held accountable and you are part of the solution. You know, rather than we're punishing you, we are saying, how can you fix it? Thank you for being honest and taking accountability. How can how can we as a group, as a community, fix that? So that's just my initial take, but I, I Rick lives and breathes this, so I definitely want to give him the opportunity to jump in I'm on ready. this as well. Uh, so your question started with kind of conflict, and I know that you're um, interested in, in, in RJ. A couple caveats. Um, one, I think conflict has a bad name. We think that conflict is inherently negative. It often brings feelings up for us. But let's be honest, education exists because of conflict, right? Uh, our ancestors believed the world was flat. If conflict was not a good thing, no one would have been able to ever challenge that idea, and we'd still believe it's flat, right? Medicine, right? Uh, uh, seat belts. When I was a young person, we were told, this is going to tell you how old I am, that wearing a seatbelt will kill you. Why? Because it will trap you in a car that's going to blow up in an accident. Now we know that that's silly. Airbags were bad because they were going to cause accidents. Can you imagine getting in a car right now without wearing your seatbelt and not having an airbag, right? It's a different thing. So conflict in and of itself isn't a bad thing. To Jake's point, how we resolve conflict is the key. And so um, what I would say this is that, so for, for me, um, my understanding of restorative justice, and I'm on about a 15, 18 year journey somewhere there. Uh, and I don't, I, uh, sometimes people say, you're an expert. I'm not an expert. Uh, these are practices that are 10,000 years old or older or more, certainly, as long as Homo sapiens have been around and living in community, living in tribes, living in villages. Um, people have not had a third party, a government, an agency to go to. They had to work these things out on their own. You were accountable to the persons you harmed. That's how our ancestors resolved these things. And so RJ is, in my view, uh, returning back to a concept I know Jake and I talk about, which is a uh, South African term, Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U, which means I am because you are. I don't exist apart from you. We live in community, we're connected. Everything I, like I do, that. everything I do affects you, including the good. 
So let's maximize. So to me, RJ is really about how do we maximize the good and minimize the bad. And we best do that when we do it together, when we do it with people, not when we do it to them or when we do it for them. And to take it a step further, we don't have to wait for something to go bad. We don't have to only practice this in response to a thing that happened. We can build community connection, um, relationship in a restorative way before harm is caused because we also know people are less likely, generally speaking, to harm people that they have a connection. Wow. That was deep. <laughs> yeah. That, that gives no, me I, goosebumps. I don't know yeah, about you. Yeah. I, I, yeah cause Not I've, my words. I stole them from somebody else. Because so. like going back to like that, my, well, when I did mine, it was called like a peace circle. I don't mm, know, yes. like sure. circle, whatever sure. name. When I did mine, it was very, um, I did not expect that level of understanding from everyone because everyone's kind of hearing each other out. So it's like, what were you thinking at the time? Um, what mm-hmm. do you think should happen going forward? Yeah. Um, other questions like, what do you think, yeah, needs to happen? What was the hardest thing for you? What have you thought about sense? And all of those different questions I think are so important. And I think everyone should take that route in terms of resolving those conflicts. Because like you said, they're not inherently negative or don't have to be. So We, we have trained ourselves as a culture to become junior investigators. So when we hear right. something happens, we start asking questions like we're going to decide what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, actually, I would say in addition to training ourselves to be investigators, we are also very quick to just call someone else to fix it. Call the pest control to come and get Call rid of that raccoon. Call the president because my roommate's not. <laughs> <Well>, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those are gun. real life stories. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but we have it within ourselves. Wisdom, I love this quote. Wisdom comes uh, from living well together. So the, the, the innate wisdom of the group didn't exist until we came together, right? Mm-hmm. When you're an adjudicator, as Jake and I have referred to, like hearing words, one person deciding what's best for everybody, like that's just inherently problematic, right? But if we all come yeah. together to do this, right, we can come up with better outcomes. Right. I agree. Me too. I love it. I love it. it makes my brain, like the gears turn up there. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah. Well, hopefully this is just the beginning of that conversation. We can continue this right. somewhere else. Right. Agreed. Um, so kind of continuing on, and wrapping it up but also just touching on what your job is um so just what is your favorite part about working with the students um you know i know not probably not everyone that comes in the office has a complaint so just like students from any background just how is it what's your favorite part working with them and then also you guys are some spartans so what's your (laughs) favorite part about being a spartan yeah i'll I'll start uh jake here and and my favorite part uh, it's just working with a diverse group of students. Every student has a story, and every student has a different journey of how they got here and, and how they decided to come to MSU and, and why they're here, and they all have different ideas, concepts, and I just love being a part of their journey and, and hearing their stories and and uh, just how we can support them, what whatever it may be, and... and uh, Maybe they just wanted to stop by for the awesome treats that they that we have in our office, and like just bar Snickers, saying hi, and uh, that's totally fine, and and we love that too. Um, 
Some students will bring their pets by, say hi to the, the animal. Uh, oh, I love it. And so yeah. it's just, it's never a dull day in the office. You know, just always good to to uh, see our students, see where they're learning and how they're learning about themselves, um, what they're learning in the classroom and, and outside the classroom, where they're going to go. I think that's just really exciting to be a part of that. So, uh, and then your second question there about what's what's my favorite part of, of being a Spartan is just, I love the school spirit. I mean, this is something I've worked at multiple institutions across the United States, um, and I've yet to be somewhere where you get fifty thousand people that are just pumped about the Spartans, you know. And I just it's and that's not just athletics; it's everything. And I think people just there's a pride that comes with being at MSU, and I think that's that's pretty awesome. Uh, so um, I like my favorite is one on one with students right because uh getting to know people like that's my that's what i that's my favorite so that's the easy part i think um i mean i like certainly like being with groups and i'm a fairly social person but to me having a real big fan of Brene brown and so uh, this idea of having like an authentic conversation with you and learning something about you that maybe other people don't know or perhaps something that um, you don't feel comfortable talking about with other people. I, it's always a huge compliment when somebody's able to share something with me that maybe they haven't shared with other people. That's a sign of trust, and that's a really on, a place of honor uh, to be. So I really like uh, those opportunities. Um, you know, we're all getting older. I'm getting older. Feels like faster. So being around younger people is a is a is a nice thing. Uh, I think generally speaking, and I learn a ton from students. I learn a ton from my my sons. We we uh, read books and talk about the books. In fact, I have a regular Sunday night conversation with my oldest son who lives in Providence, Rhode Island. We read a chapter and talk about the book. So um, th- those are the things that I, I, find, I find learning, generally speaking, to be a, a fun thing. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to take a bit of a risk here, but I grew up in Ann Arbor. There's another school there. Oh, okay. I was born in... Oh. <laughs> But I was I was also partially raised in Petoskey, Michigan, mm-hmm. and Bay uh, Shore, Michigan, a town of about a hundred people. Uh, and so I have this sort of like very rural, small town. But grew up, went to Ann Arbor Pioneer High School. I came to Michigan State University uh, following a female friend who was three years older than me, just because I was <laughs> trying to get no, not no. <laughs> but just because I was trying to get away from my parents, but not be alone. And yeah. she was she was a friend, uh, and. I found uh, what I loved about this place was that people like Terry, uh, even people who didn't know you, if you were wandering around this campus long before we had phones and somebody looked like you were lost, they came up and asked you, can I help you? I think that Spartan spirit exists in lots of places um, that didn't exist necessarily uh, in parts where I grew up. And I feel like that is still the case now. I, I believe when you become a Spartan, you're always a Spartan. Even if you don't graduate, I get a chance to speak to the magic students uh, periodically over the years in uh, a pre-matriculation program in the summer for first-generation college students. And we say to them, welcome to the Spartan family. You are now and forever a member of the family. Whether you come back here, whether you stay here, whether you finish here, you're still a member of our family. And we care about what happens to you when you leave and when you come back to see us, we're glad, right? Because we're connected to you. Uh, and so for me, the fact that I can go anywhere, uh, one very quick story if I have time. 
I had a chance to go to Oakland, California on what might have been the hottest day on the planet to, to, to do a, to a sort of justice conference. And I was wearing, unfortunately, pants and a jacket because I was thinking I might just need it and it was easier than trying to tuck it away. It was the day that the Golden State Warriors had won the National Basketball Association Championship and Draymond Green uh, plays on that team. And so there were lots of Spartan fans also on the streets of Oakland, California. It was about 98 degrees in the shade and I was carrying luggage and couldn't get a ride to my hotel. So I had to walk about two miles, but I was wearing my Spartan jacket. And about every 100 yards, somebody yelled, go green. Go white. Go white. Right? <laughs> so everywhere you go, there's gonna be a Spartan. And that's a, that makes the planet feel a little smaller. It's pretty cool. That is a cool story. Cause we, someone that we work with at the NSO office, I don't know where he was. It was Andre and he was like traveling the world. He was in an airport and he saw someone with like an MSU hat or something. Mm -hmm. They talked for like 30 minutes. Yeah. They like about their experiences, MSU, what they do, all yeah. that. They're yeah. besties. <laughs> and that's what I like agree with. Like that sense of pride, like. Uh, like you kind of look at them like, ah, I know, you know, you know. <laughs> we, we, uh, a former yeah. colleague once shared the story that uh, while on an airplane ride that was delayed and they were going to get late to their gate, if you ever had one of those experiences, yes. like, oh my God, it's going to be a nightmare, <laughs> right? And so what happened is the pilot came on the air and said, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to know the people in traffic control, one of them's a Spartan. They've cleared us to get into the jet stream. We're going to actually arrive earlier. Wow. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> Tell people where you're from. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you guys for joining us today. Um, and thank you everybody for listening and tuning in to this episode. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spartan Orientation Station on Impact 89 FM. Let us know what you think by connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at MSU underscore NSO.